Let me just get this out of the way. Happy National Ice Cream Day. Are you glad I said that? Come on. Vanilla fans in the house, let's go. Chocolate. Gelato. For the old folks in the house, let's come on. Hey, uh, so thanks so much for being here. Thanks for being here online. Listen, we are finishing up today in our series in the book of James. You know, and we've, we've gone through a lot. The overarching theme of James, hey, be doers of the word, not just hearers. Don't just listen and not do anything, do something. You know, and there's a lot of history about James. And, and when James is writing this particular passage, James has been the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Now, the church in Jerusalem is super important, okay? Obviously, being the birthplace of Christianity, he is, he is the one who's leading the charge from Jerusalem. So as people are going out and churches are getting planted, it's coming out of, it's coming out of the church in Jerusalem. And as James is writing this letter, what has happened is there's a lot of persecution, as you can imagine, that Jesus has come in, has kind of wrecked the status quo, and the Jewish religion is not happy about it. And so there's a lot of persecution, and so the church is scattered all over the region. And James is writing this letter to help them remember how to act, what does it look like, hold fast to the faith, and he's writing this letter to the churches. Now, don't forget that James is the brother of Jesus. James is the brother of Jesus. Like, how many of you guys have siblings? Like, how many of you... Your sibling is the favorite sibling in the family, right? Like everybody, like I've only met one person who said, yeah, yeah, I'm the favorite. That's, I've only met one person ever that was, you know, like I've got a, an older sister. She was always the favorite, weren't you, Melanie? And so we all know this and think about Jesus being the favorite. James always had to go through life listening to that. Be like, be more like your brother. And so James grew up skeptical and suspicious and with a little bit of sibling rivalry with Jesus. And it followed into his young adulthood. One of the scenes where we see Jesus and James interact is that James and his brothers and Mary, their mother, show up this house where Jesus is teaching. And they're trying to get him to come out because they're like, they, people are going to think you're crazy and they're going to hurt you. And they're trying to get Jesus to come out and Jesus won't come out. But then something happened. Man, and James went from being all out to being all in. Man, James went from hearing about his brother and seeing the things that he taught and, and listening to him to all of a sudden believing them and acting on them and living them out and giving his life for them. And this is where we see this idea that we're to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Now, now as we look at the life of James and the book of James, we know that probably that as he looked after he began to follow Christ and he looked back on his life, he looked back on the times when Jesus was a kid and he looked back on when he was a teenager and he listened and rem remembered the teaching of Jesus that he probably looked back and connected some dots. Don't you imagine? He looked back and remembered and some things began to make sense for him. And as we look at the book of James and some of the, the, one of the great takeaways that he had from Jesus is what we want to talk about today. You see, I don't think the great takeaway for James from Jesus was, hey, here's how to be a great strategic church planter. Do you? I don't think the greatest takeaway was, hey, here's how to be a fiery preacher. I don't think the greatest takeaway was, hey, listen, here's how you should have more wisdom. And we see the takeaway sprinkled throughout the book of James. He starts out with it in chapter 1. We talked about it last week in chapter 4. And he's going to end his letter with this one takeaway where he believes power comes from, where he believes wisdom com comes from, where he believes purpose comes from. And his greatest takeaway from the life of his brother Jesus was prayer. It was prayer. Like as he looked back on Jesus' life, that is the one thing that stood out to him. 
Now, now when I say that, it feels a little anticlimactic, doesn't it? You're like, wait a minute, I thought James was a doer. And praying doesn't feel like doing anything, does it? Like, as a matter of fact, some of you grew up in church, and you know this phrase. Someone will ask you to do something, and you'll say this phrase, let me pray about it. You know what that means? You guys that went to church, you know what that means. That means, no, I'm not doing it, but I'm just too embarrassed to tell you, no, I'm not doing it. I'm going to pray about it. We don't feel like prayer has any action involved to it at all. But what we're going to see is like it is the foundation of life. Let me tell you how it marked James. James was known as a man of prayer, that James had this unique ability because of his reputation. He could go into the holy place in the temple and he would pray. And he would pray for hours. He prayed so much on his knees that, his, that calluses began to form on his knees. And, and he was known to have knees like a camel. Hello, ladies. You like that? They don't sell a tool for that at Walmart to get rid of that callus, do they? Like imagine how long you'd have to pray to have calluses on your knees. Like imagine getting calluses on your hands and how long that takes. What about having them on your knees? This was the level. This was the power of James' prayer life. This was his posture. And you see, the posture of James' body only reflected the posture of his heart. The posture of James' body reflected the posture of his heart towards God. And here's what James knew. He knew that a posture towards God in prayer produces power in my life. My posture towards God in prayer actually produces power in my life. And so today as we just kind of get started, like there's a question that we should just kind of let hang over the day. Like what area of your life needs power today? Like what area of your life needs power? You know, it could be a relationship. Maybe you're single and wanting to be married or married and, you know, wondering if you may end up being single and you just need some power into God to show up there. Maybe you're a parent here today. And you just need some power in your relationship with your kids. Maybe you're, maybe you're in high school or college and you're just needing to know what next steps are going to be. And you need God to show up in some type of power in your life. Maybe it's in the area of your job. You need God to show up with some power, with some new business and future business or even a job itself. Like you need God to show up with some wisdom maybe. There's areas that we all have where we need God's power to show up. And what we're going to see today in the book of James is that prayer is actually where the power comes from. So let's grab our Bibles. We're going to be in James chapter 5. James chapter 5. I'm going to start kind of at the end of this passage and then work my way back towards the beginning, kind of teach it backwards. Um, But we're going to look at James chapter 5 and look at the life of prayer, how he commands us and teaches us and encourages us to pray and what that looks like. Um, And then... I'm going to kind of back up through the passage to talk about some practical applications of that. So verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Like that one's obvious. Am I right? Like, you know, if you're in pain, you should pray. If something's wrong, you have a car wreck, you should pray. You know, if you're sick, you should pray. You know this. That one's not as hard. It says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So when you have something good happen, you should direct your attention towards God. Your posture should be towards God. We praise God for that. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So so here's what's interesting. Right now, he's not commanding people to pray. He's commanding people to be prayed for, to be prayed for. Like like if we're honest, when we're sick, we don't want to ask anybody to pray for us because we don't want to kind of let them know that we're sick because it's kind of like admitting weakness. Guys in the room, you feel me on that, right? 
And so he's even saying, not, not only is he commanding to pray, he's like, hey, you should, you should get prayed for. It should be a normal part of the Christian life. He says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So he's not even talking about just pray for physical issues, but also for spiritual health. Like there's a spiritual component of our, our lives that we should pray for. And then he says this, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So, so when he uses this word righteous person, it doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean they got it all together. It means someone whose posture is a posture towards God to do what God has said, to follow what God has commanded and to live a life whose heart is melted and molded by the affection for God. And that person actually has great power as the working. Then he gives us this practical example. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it wouldn't rain. And for three and a half years, three years, six months, it did not rain. Then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So just to kind of unpack a little bit about Elijah. Remember, he says he was a man with a nature like ours. Okay, just like me and you. But, but one of the things we know about Elijah is he was a very prominent figure in the Old Testament. Like, like Elijah would go on the Mount Rushmore of the Bible. He, he was one of the big ones. It would be Elijah, Moses, and Jesus is how that would go. But Elijah is probably the one we know the least about. Now, now Elijah um, was there, it, it had this unique opportunity. He didn't die. Like God just took him straight into heaven. Does that sound pretty good? Right? I mean, that, that feels like the way to go. I'm just going to take you right on. This is how special it was. I get it. That's a little bit of a mystery and it's a miracle and it's supernatural. But that's, that, this is the level of Elijah's life. He shows up in the New Testament. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be executed. And before he goes, he has this, he has this um, it feels like a coaching session, but it's not. He has this encounter on a mountain as he's praying. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. And what happens is on this, he meets Moses. And most of us have heard of Moses, Ten Commandments. And he meets Elijah. Like this is the opportunity. This is how big a name Elijah was in the, in the Bible. Now, Elijah first appears back in the book of 1 Kings, roughly around verse 7. Now, Elijah is standing in front of Ahab, the king, and Jezebel, the queen. Like, this is where we get the word Jezebel from. Like, you know anybody named Jezebel? Have you ever called anybody a Jezebel? Like, that'd be a derogatory term. I'm sorry if your name's Jezebel. Um, blame your parents, not me. But in the Bible, what we see is Ahab and Jezebel, super evil. And so he's standing before them. It already hasn't rained for six months, and he's saying three more years. We're going to have drought for three more years. So they do what's natural, and they want to kill him. So Elijah flees into the wilderness, and he sits by this small little stream. No water, because it's what? It has been a drought. And, and he's just like, woe is me. But God provides for him. Water begins to flow down the stream. Birds begin to bring him food. Now, you would think that later in life, Elijah would be like, oh, yeah. Remember that time God did that? Yeah, when things got difficult that he would look back and say, oh, yeah, that, I remember that. I remember that time. But Elijah doesn't. Like, aren't we like that a lot? And we'll, hear, we'll see God come through. We'll believe something. And then our circumstances get the best of us, and we kind of forget what God has done. So Elijah ends up going back to confront Ahab and Jezebel. And he has this battle. So Ahab and Jezebel worship this God named Baal. And so Elijah has this kind of showdown at the OK Corral with the prophets of Baal. So they come to this mountain 
And, and they just put, they had this challenge. It's like, we're, we're both going to pray to our gods, and whichever God answers by fire, they win. Like, that feels fair to me, doesn't it to you? So the prophets of Baal began to do their thing. They began to sing. They began to worship. They began to dance around. They even began cutting their bodies. No fire. And y'all, Elijah talks trash to them. He literally says to them, hey, I think your God may be asleep. Why don't you go wake him up? And then he says this is kind of crude. He's like, or maybe he's over there going to the bathroom. Maybe you should check behind the trees. He literally does this and just is so bold. And then it's his turn. So Elijah digs a trench around the altar, pours water in it, just to make it hard, and then prays. And what happens? Lightning comes down. Now, I don't know about you, but calling down lightning would be a very cool spiritual gift, wouldn't it? <laughs> like, if you could do that, you would always know God's here. And, and, and you know what? And your kids would always know where you are. Like, oh, there's lightning downtown. Dad must be downtown today. You know, I mean, it's just one of those that everybody sees. Everybody, it is so powerful. And then Ahab and Jezebel uh, put a warrant out to kill Elijah. Elijah runs into the wilderness. And Elijah sits down and says, God... Why have you forgotten me? Like, like, I'm the only one that's left serving you, and you've abandoned me. He completely forgets everything that God had done. And I think that's kind of how we can, we can relate to Elijah, is that we begin to doubt God, we begin to question God, and we begin to wonder if he's really going to come through for us. And so what James is teaching us is that even though Elijah was just like us, Powerful things happened when he prayed. You know, for James, who is this super practical, pragmatic kind of leader, prayer is really practical because it's powerful. Prayer is really practical because it's powerful. You know, sometimes we want, uh, uh, we want a magic bullet. And, and what James is teaching us is about prayer. But if we're honest, sometimes we treat prayer as optional because we don't think it's powerful. I mean, we treat prayer as optional because we don't think it's powerful. I mean, we don't necessarily start our day in prayer. And we, we don't necessarily believe that it works. And, and I, I understand that too. I understand that a little bit. Because the reality is we've prayed things. You've prayed things and they haven't happened, haven't you? And you prayed and they still died. You prayed and they still lost their job. You prayed and things still didn't work out. But James is trying to encourage us and help us to believe and to remember and remind us that prayer is powerful. When it says that the effective prayer of a righteous man has great power, that, that word literally means to, to get into the fray, to get into the battle is what that means. Because prayer is how you actually get into the battle of life. And James, as he writes this idea, it's like there's this resistance in your life and you've got to know how to stand firm against this resistance. Have you ever noticed how much resistance you have in life? Like you try to take some steps too good and maybe it doesn't work out. There's three different areas where resistance comes from. Number one is from Satan. We talked about that last week. You remember that, you know, Satan is out to discourage us. He will give us negative thoughts. He wants us to think in darkness. He will cause us to spiral. He will cause us to think uh, less of ourselves than we are, cause us to think less of God than we are. So we have to know how to resist that. You know, the world also gives us resistance. 
The world will always want to take us away from what God's best is and try to help us buy what they're selling, which is temporary and not as, and not as satisfying. And then the third, the third place we face resistance is from our own flesh. You know, have you ever had that thing you wanted to do, but you didn't do it and you wish you'd have done it, but you didn't, but you didn't do it. And somehow inside that feels like this, there's this war going on in your soul. This is the resistance that we face. And so what James is saying is face the resistance through prayer. This is how it happens, through a posture of prayer. And so, you know, sometimes prayers are answered differently. You know, um, I like to think sometimes they're like an Instapot, sometimes they're like a Crock-Pot. You know, sometimes prayers are answered just like that. You pray and it happens. And you pray and something, you're like, oh, yeah, that, that actually works. I can remember when my kids were smaller, um, we, they needed a computer. And I was like, well, you guys, you should pray about that. And so they did. And like two hours later, a friend of mine called and says, hey, our company's getting rid of some computers. You want one? I'm like, let me pray about that. And so, <laughs> and so we got a computer. And I can remember my son saying, wow, that prayer thing works. <laughs> and sometimes, you know what, it takes longer, doesn't it? Sometimes you still don't see it. You know, there's time when my son John was in a tragic accident. It was, it was months of praying and weeping and pleading. And there's still some things now that I pray for that haven't happened. There's some areas in my life I want God to change my character. He still hadn't changed them. And maybe that's just like Paul, when Paul prayed that he had a thorn in his flesh that the Lord wasn't going to remove so that he would always boast in his weakness, not in his strength. And maybe that's how it's going to be. But we know that, man, prayer is powerful just based on this example of James. Now, now, what prayer does, it actually proves that you believe God is real. The reason why you pray is because you believe there's a God who's going to answer. The reason you wouldn't pray is because you don't believe there's a God who's going to answer. What prayer does, it actually proves that you think God is real. And I'm a firm believer that if you want to know what someone's faith looks like, don't ask them their theological statement. Just listen to them pray. Like, don't ask them what's their doctrine of belief. Just listen to, just listen to how they pray. And when you hear them pray, man, you'll understand what they believe about God and what they believe about what God will do, can do, should do, won't do. You'll, you'll know those things. You'll know something about their relationship with God and how that looks. So, so let me ask you this question for you. Like, like, what would people say in your life about you and your belief in God if they heard you pray? Like, what would people say you believe about God if they heard you pray? Hey, husbands, what would your wives say you believe about God if they heard you pray? Do they think you believe in God because they hear you pray? Or maybe you don't because they don't hear you pray? Man, do they, do they think that God's the center of their universe and that you're going to treat them better because of how you pray? Like, what would your wives say? Like, like parents, what would your kids say? You believe about God by how you pray. Like, when my kids are little, I probably spent way too much time asking them, did they do their homework and did they clean their room rather than how can I pray for you, if I'm honest. Like, when's the last time, rather than arguing with your teenager, not that that would ever happen to anybody, you sat down and said, hey, we're, I, we don't see eye to eye right here. Let's pray about this right now. Like, what would people say? What about people who are maybe your friends, maybe people you work with? What would they say about you, your faith, your belief in the power of God in your life based on listening to you pray? What James says is it's got great power in prayer. Then he moves on, and we see that the posture of prayer actually changes our posture towards the world you know, our posture prioritizes tomorrow over today. 
Now, now I'm going to back up into verse 1, and it's, it's pretty harsh. I'm like, James, come on, man. So watch, in, in chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Like, that's, that's pretty hard. Like, when someone's rich, do you weep and howl because they're going to enter into misery? Now, I would weep and howl if I won the lottery because I'm happy. Not because I'm afraid of misery, but James has this unique perspective on what's coming. Watch what happens. It says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. So what he's saying when he says laid up treasure in the last days, like you've stored up money in your bank account, you've built bigger barns, you've, built, you've bought more clothes, and the last days are here. You've rearranged the chairs on the deck of the Titanic is what James is saying. It says the wages, and then it, skipping down to verse five, it says this, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered. Like it is, it's rugged what he says about people who were rich. And, and, and what he's doing is actually reflecting on what Jesus said in Matthew chapter six. Cause again, he's, James is looking back and connecting the dots for, for the words that Jesus taught. And in Matthew chapter six, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said something very similar about things that would, uh, things that would be destroyed. Matthew chapter six, verse 19, it says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves don't break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think that he knew. We just have this propensity to put our security in what's here and what we can see, don't we? Man, we have this unique ability to be deceived about what's right in front of us rather than what's coming for us in the future. It reminds me a little bit of the Great Depression. Now, as I was doing some reading on the Great Depression, you may remember this out of history. Herbert Hoover was actually the president um, as the Great Depression started. And right before it started, kind of early in his tenure, maybe even before he took office, he said this. In no nation are the fruits of accomplishment more secure. And then the country was littered with little villages called Hoovervilles. There were little shanties where people had to stay off cardboard and sheet metal because they had no homes. And sometimes if we're not careful, we'll think our security actually lies in uh, our affluence. And what happens is we trade out our net worth for our self-worth. And, then, and he uses the word self-indulgent and luxury. Now, now self-indulgent just means undisciplined. And you know, what it, you know what it's like if you're undisciplined in areas of life? You know what happens? Bad things happen. So like if you're, you're undisciplined in studying and doing schoolwork and staying on top of it, what happens? You end up living in your parents' basement the rest of your life. If you're undisciplined in your work ethic, what happens? And you, you don't get promoted and you may even lose your job. If you're undisciplined in your health, you don't eat well and don't exercise, I mean, your cholesterol numbers are going to be through the roof and you're going to be overweight and you're not going to feel good. And so what James is saying is this is an area that we need to pay attention to, to learn what it means to be disciplined because we're surrounded by so much affluence and so much luxury. He uses the word luxury. And I, had to, I just kind of had to ask myself, like, is that something we should think about? Luxury. Do we live in luxury? Is the fact that we have clean water coming out the side of our house mean we have luxury? The fact that our kids play on AstroTurf Field, does that mean we have luxury? 
Like, like I, I don't know like exactly what the right answer was. And I think James would say, you know, it's not about the number. It's about your heart. But what I do think James would say is you should, we should at least ask the question. I mean, Lululemon or Under Armour, which one's luxury? I don't know. But I think it, it should cause us to kind of ask the question about living in luxury because you don't want to live for now when you know that tomorrow's coming. And so you have, to, you have to ask yourself, like, do my prayers prioritize today, what I want now, what I want in the immediate, or does it prioritize later, tomorrow, tomorrow, meaning what happens in eternity? And so we need to have some level of discipline around just asking the question. You know, there's a story out of uh, the Odyssey. You guys have to read the Odyssey when you were in school. Like, yeah, I mean, I, me too. So I read the Cliff Notes. Anybody read the Cliff Notes? So the Odyssey is really interesting, um, written by Homer. And if you've never read it, you should kind of invest the next four months in reading it. But part of the story goes when, when, when Odysseus is coming home, trying to get back home from being in battle. And they go by this island and there are females there, women there, they, they called them sirens. I don't think it's supposed to be negative. Um, take it how you want. But the sirens just had this song that they were singing, these voices that were irresistible. And every boat that ever passed by always went towards the sirens and they all were shipwrecked and everybody died. That's the story. So Odysseus knows he's got to go by the island. So he has his crew lash his arms to the mast so that when he hears them, he won't steer them that way. And he tells his crew, no matter what I say, do not untie me until we are past the sirens. And what James is trying to say is what prayer does, and it lashes our hands to the proverbial mast so that the noise of our culture and affluence and luxury don't, don't cause us to go down a pathway that's going to lead to our destruction and cause us to live for today rather than tomorrow. So this posture of prayer is what helps us to live for what's happening in eternity, to lay up treasure in heaven, not to lay up treasure now. And then, and then in verse 7, he says this. Let me get back to James. Verse 7, he says, Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So he, he, he tells us to establish our hearts. Now, this is another word that means stand firm, get into the battle. Hey, fight it out. Don't just let it overtake you, but, but get busy and get into it with you and stand firm because you have to stand firm if you're going to resist. You see, a posture of prayer, what that does, it establishes my heart towards heaven. It establishes my heart towards heaven. And there's some outcomes of that that we're going to experience. You know, one of the things that it's going to teach us is that bad things are going to turn out for my good. Like bad things that happen are going to turn out for my good. And prayer is going to be the foundation of me believing that and living into that. You know, in Romans 8, chapter 19, it says, I consider that the sufferings of this world aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And Paul writes that. And so when we go into difficulties and we go into struggles, and one of the things that you and I will always share in this life is suffering and hardship and struggle. 
But the fact is God's given us a way to find peace and comfort and to release us from anxiety in the midst of that. And you may at times even look at God and say, God, I can't see how this is going to be good. And it's precisely because we can't see that we need to pray so that we can see. You know, not only will, will good things be ma- bad things be made good, but we're going to actually store up treasure in heaven that's going to be truly satisfying and things that can't be taken away. Have you noticed how badly we want things and they get taken away from us? And how much we end up just kind of focusing on them and wanting more? Like I can remember Debbie and I first got married. We live in a garage apartment. I didn't worry if the paint peeled or the door broke or if there were weeds in my yard, because I was not getting a letter from the HOA. But now I have to worry about and think about those things. What about your first car? Anybody make their, that first car mistake? You know what I'm saying? You went and bought way more car than you should have bought, and you look back on it with regret, just me and Ryan, I guess. <laughs> but I can remember the first car I had, man, it was a dump, and I didn't care if it got scratched or hit, but then when you begin to buy nicer things, it takes more effort to take care of them. Man, it takes more energy. You worry about them more. True story, there was a guy that went to our church, this has been decades ago, uh, had a very nice car. And uh, he, one, one, and he had been in our church a long time and wanted to come uh, bring his nice car, and he wanted to park it right out front in the fire lane. I'm like, oh, man, you can't do that. That's not appropriate. Um, that's very selfish and prideful. You should weep and howl because you're rich. And we wouldn't let him park because we had plenty of parking, and, and he never came back. And that's worshiping, right? That's putting all your hope here. And you know what? Truly satisfying things that can't be taken away from you. The fact that you're adopted in the family of God through Jesus can never be taken away from you. The fact that God chooses to call you his friend. He's blessed you in the heavenly places. He's forgiven you of sins. That he's restored your heart. That he's given you an eternity to look to. Man, it can never be taken away. Truly satisfying things can never be taken away from us. Man, and finally, the best is yet to come. I think that's what James would say. He would say the best is yet to come. You, you, see, you see, James knew something about hardship. As he's written this, he's been the pastor in Jerusalem. He's seen people martyred. And we know that later, not long after he wrote this letter, he himself was martyred. James was thrown off the top of the temple and stoned to death. He knew difficulty, but he also knew the best was yet to come. He knew that there was a life later that God was preparing for them. And as he looked back on the life of his brother Jesus and on his teaching and on his ministry, on the time he spent with them and on his resurrection, he knew, oh, the best is yet to come. And this is the hope that we have. And this is why we pray. And when we pray and have a posture of prayer towards eternity, it changes how we think about today. It's the most practical thing that we could ever do. Let me ask you, what posture of prayer do you need to take today? What posture of prayer do you need to take There's so many different ways that we can pray. And maybe for you, you know, your prayer life exists of you get in the car and just pray, God, help there not be any traffic. That's a start. But maybe there's a next level for you. Maybe it's to wake up in the morning and to actually get on your knees with your Bible and say, God, I need you involved in this day. I got to have some wisdom today. I got some big decisions today. I got this meeting happening at 10 today. I need you to be involved in that. You know, maybe today it's, it's time for some spouses to pray together. 
It's time for some spouses to pray together. Have you ever noticed if you're married that the person, the most awkward person to pray with is your spouse? Have you noticed this? Because they know everything about you. And it's difficult. And also it's opposed by Satan. So let me just simplify that one for you real quick. Because it can feel like, oh, when you pray with somebody, you got to have like a church service. You know, we got to play some worship music and it's going to be forever. And people are like, I ain't got time for that. I got to watch the British Open. Come on, girl. And so... All it is is just do super simple sentence prayers with your spouse. Super simple. So on the way out the door, maybe to work, the first way to start, grab hands and just pray for each other. So I'm like, hey, God, Debbie's got all these things happening. Help her to have a great day. And then maybe if you have kids, you just walk through each kid. And we just go back and forth. I'll pray one, she'll pray one. And then when we're done, we look at each other and we'll say, are you done? And, she'll, and we'll both say yes. And then we'll say amen. Like, doesn't feel super spiritual, but it is super simple. What about praying with your kids? Like, one of the great ways to redeem text messaging is to text your kids, hey, how can I pray for you? It's a great way to do it. But maybe even at home, just to say, hey, how can I pray for you? Maybe they have a test that day. Maybe something's going on big in their life. How can I pray for you? And you may feel like the ship has sailed on you in that area because you got teenagers. It's never too late to start. You know what God will do? Man, he'll do something powerful as you learn to pray with your kids. What about your friends? I think one of the greatest evangelism tools that we can have is to say, hey, how can I pray for you? Maybe you hear a need, someone's going through a difficult time. You say, hey, listen, I'm going to pray for you right now and do it in the moment. I think that's one of the ways that people will believe that we believe God is real and that we believe that God is powerful and he's going to do something in our lives. Your life can have more power and more purpose if you have a posture of prayer. And so let me just close out kind of what that looks like at the end, right? Paul writes these words to the Philippian church. He says, therefore, speaking of Jesus, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Like this is the image, the posture of eternity. Let's pray together. So God, it blows my mind that you're a God who asks us to pray, man, who invites us to have a relationship, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father now praying for us, that you gave us your spirit to pray for us when we don't know how to pray for ourselves. And God, we all could use more understanding about prayer, how to pray, man, what to pray for. But God, we know it's just based out of a relationship with you. God, it just shows that our heart's posture is towards you, God, that, that our heart's posture should just be one of humility, pointing our lives towards God in the good and the bad, man, and the, the pretty and the ugly, God. And Lord, as we think about prayer, Lord, that our lives would be marked by that. God, that our marriages would be marked by that, our parenting would be marked by that, our friendship would be marked by that, God, that our church would be marked by that. And God, that we would never say something like, I, the least I can do is pray for you. No, it's the most that somebody can do. And so God, I pray that we would just see the power that's in it, that even though we've experienced the pain of prayer, that we don't understand how it was answered and what you're doing, God, that you will help us to see it. And God, the best is yet to come. Thanks for the gospel and a God who cares enough to be with us and to help us to orient our lives towards him. And it's in Jesus' name.